Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. Our goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Devin Nahr, who is the Isaac Al-Hadef Professor of Sephardic Studies and Associate Professor of History at the University of Washington. He is the author of the widely acclaimed book, Jewish Salonika, Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece, which won the 2016 National Jewish Book Award and the Edmund Keeley Prize for Best Book in Modern Greek Studies in 2017. Welcome to you, Devin. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. So we find ourselves at an important and fragile moment in U.S. history, one in which protests over racial violence has generated widespread movements of protest and a new awareness of structural racism has taken hold among wide swaths of Americans. We've also seen new alliances between African-Americans and other groups as part of the movement for black lives. One important group that has had a somewhat tricky relationship to the movement are Jews, which is surprising given their powerful alliance with African-Americans during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Part of the explanation is because precisely at that time, Jews were in the throes of becoming white, of joining the white mainstream. But that perhaps is a bit too coarse of a claim because Jews of whom there are between five and a half to seven and a half million in this country are a diverse group. So are Jews white or not? And what are the stakes? Our guest Devin Nahr can help us understand where Jews fit into the current moment. He is an expert on Sephardic Jews, about whom we'll hear soon. And he is also part of a group of young Sephardic Jews who are seeking to align their own efforts to overcome marginalization with a struggle for racial justice in America. Let's talk a bit about the history of Sephardic Jews before turning to the present. So Devin, the dominant narrative of Jews in the United States focuses on Ashkenazic Jews, that is Jews chiefly of European and more particularly Eastern European origin it tends to marginalize the experience of Jews of Sephardic origin who arrived in the Americas long before Ashkenazic Jewry. Can you give us a brief history of the Sephardic origins of American Jewry? I think that there are at least two different ways to think about Sephardic Jews as it relates to American Jewish history. You know, as you alluded to, in many ways, American Jewish history begins with a Spanish and Portuguese Jewish group that comes to what was then New Amsterdam in 1654, and all become very deeply involved in the American colonial enterprise from an early phase. Um, and those Jews would come to achieve the status as kind of the American uh, Jewish grandees, the elite among the American Jewish um, population. And uh, they would be joined in the 19th century by German-speaking Jews from Central Europe, and then, of course, the masses of Yiddish-speaking Jews from Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Sephardic kind of group out of which my family comes, in part, uh, is the group that comes from the Muslim world of the Ottoman Empire, 
of, um, of the Eastern Mediterranean, of the Levant. And so in some ways, the Levantine Jews, uh, the Oriental Jews, uh, fill the exact opposite pole of kind of the American Jewish social and racial hierarchy, such that you know, there's a lot of discussion about the importance of the Spanish and Portuguese during the Spanish and Portuguese Jews during the colonial period. But the uh, Jews from the Muslim world who arrive in the 20th century are largely invisibilized. We know very little about them, and they are not incorporated into our narratives or popular representation of American Jewish life. So one thing that you just suggested is that these categories like Sephardic, or for that matter, Ashkenazic, because we have German and Yiddish-speaking Jews often who regarded each other with considerable contempt, um, but you mentioned sort of those of Spanish uh, and Portuguese origin who arrived in colonial times and those who arrived from the Ottoman Empire. And this suggests that these categories may be um, overly broad and don't attend to or aren't attentive enough to uh, differences within the group. So how helpful are these categories that we typically use, Ashkenazic, Sephardic, and do we need to disaggregate them? I think that we should be in the, we should be very interested in disaggregating these terms, but they do play a very useful role in our society right now. I think both in terms of thinking about the American framework of the black-white kind of dichotomy, historically, there's an element there, um, and also of thinking about the ways in which uh, race science of the early 20th century in some ways codified these categories. I mean, that if you look at if you look at the anthropologists and the other kinds of social scientists in the beginning of the 20th century, they are really confirming and uh, reifying these categories, graphing um, Ashkenazic onto European and whiteness and uh, Oriental originally or initially onto non-European and, and kind of non-whiteness. And in fact, the claim to Sephardicness is in some ways an attempt to attach Jews who are outside of the European framework, outside of the white framework, to a uh, legacy and lived reality that connects them to whiteness, connects them to Europe through Spain and through the, the allure and the mystique of the grandeur of medieval Spanish Jews. Like everybody wants to be an heir of Maimonides um, in that regard. Right. The great 12th century Spanish Jewish philosopher and jurist. Um, and the term Sephardic comes from the Hebrew word Sepharad, which is the uh, designation for Spain, uh, the point of origin of Sephardic Jews. So tell, maybe tell us a little bit more about this racialization process, because Eastern European Jews were also subject to racialization, and you're also reminding us that Sephardic Jews were racialized. What did that racial hierarchy look like in the early 20th century with respect to these diverse strands of Jews, who uh, many of whom are arriving uh, in the late 19th, and early 20th centuries. I think that Jews who come to the United States have no choice other than to, in some way, accommodate the racial hierarchies that are, that are at play. And so those racial hierarchies, which are essentially codified by the laws of the land that granted only eligibility to become a citizen of this country to free white persons beginning in 1790 and racial prerequisites to become an American citizen are preserved until 1952. So in some ways, the American Jewish experience echoes and mirrors the broader American racial kind of uh, hierarchy, 
that positions those that are closest to Western Europe, closest to especially Protestantism, I guess, or Christianity more generally, um, as having a more privileged position in this kind of hierarchy. So Spanish and Portuguese Jews, and this is this is not a comfortable topic to discuss, by the way. You know, Spanish and Portuguese Jews look down on German-speaking Jews who together look down on the masses of Eastern European Yiddish-speaking Jews. Um, but all those three groups look down on the Jews coming from the Muslim world, on the Oriental or Levantine Jews, so much so that there was even a sense that Jews coming from the Muslim world were not even Jewish or could not be even recognized or acknowledged as Jewish. And we have many examples of this from the early 20th century of Jews from the Ottoman Empire coming to New York, imagining that they would receive a welcome from the established Jewish community getting off at Ellis Island, being recommended that they go to the Lower East Side. And uh, there's an example from Alberto Amato, for example. He was a lawyer in Istanbul. He spoke six or seven languages. Yiddish was not one of them. And he goes to the Lower East Side, interacts with the prospective uh, Ashkenazi landlord, um, who deny, he cannot believe that this guy is Jewish. His name is Amado. What kind of, that's not a Jewish name. You do not speak Yiddish. How can you be Jewish? And um, in his oral history, Amado says that he was escorted to the restroom and asked to drop his pants. And when it was revealed that he was circumcised, the prospective landlord says, you must be Muslim. You can't be Jewish. And he sends him on his way. So not only does that reveal the kind of impossibility of imagining Jews from the Muslim world or non-European, non-Ashkenazi Jews, but it also reveals a kind of a, a latent Islamophobia within the, uh, within the kind of Yiddish-speaking milieu of the early 20th century. And that personal encounter is replicated at the institutional level um, in American Jewish life from the 20th century, and I would say until the present. So what did that mean in terms of the lived experience of uh, the newly arrived uh, Sephardic Jews from the Ottoman Empire? Uh, did that lack of receptivity um, lead to um, the growth of their own discrete institutional framework? Um, what sorts of uh, cultural effects emerged? Um, was there a greater sense of attachment to the homeland because of that sense of alienation uh, which greeted them upon arrival. What did the, the lived experience look like? All of those paths were paths, paths that Ottoman Jews pursued in the early 20th century. They developed a very robust kind of largely independent institutional life with nearly 20 newspapers published in Ladino between 1910 and 1948, Ladino being the uh, Jewish Spanish uh, language of the Sephardic Jews that was historically written in Hebrew letters coming out of the Ottoman Empire and carried into the United States. They established a wide variety of mutual aid organizations. They became involved in political enterprises, um, largely as taking on the identity first of Oriental Jews and then realizing that that didn't do them any favors that category didn't do them any favors in an American context, and so they would recast themselves as Sephardic or, or Spanish Jews. Um, some of them sought rapprochement or bridges of solidarity um, with the established Jewish community, and that required in some ways either giving up aspects of their identity 
uh, conforming to the expectations of mainstream American Jewish institutions, both in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, just very basic vocabulary, like learning not to say kal when regarding referring to synagogue, but saying shul. I mean, these very basic things, but are very, very powerful, actually, in terms of creating hierarchies of visibility and erasure. And I would say some went even so far as to change their names. Not only do we have Jews changing their, you know, Ashkenazi, Eastern European sounding Jewish names to make them seem more Anglo or Yankee, if you will, of the era. But you have Sephardic Jews changing their names to make them seem more Jewish by what is meant, Ash by which is meant Ashkenazi. So you have Carmona becoming Kaplan or Ben Ruby becoming Rubin. And you have many, many examples like this. And you also have examples of impasse in this e effort to achieve rapprochement, drawing on the racial signed discourses of the era. You have Ottoman-born Jews making an argument, accepting the argument essentially that the uh, Ashkenazi Jewish establishment is making to a certain extent that Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews are separate entities, separate groups, perhaps even separate races, perhaps most poignantly represented in the first academic study of Ottoman Jews in the United States, which is undertaken in the 1920s by a scholar at Columbia, who argues that Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews are as alien, from, as alien to each other as are um, white Southerners and Negroes. That's the language of the day. That's a very sharp and very, very loaded kind of statement to make in that period, showing the what were perceived to be vast racial differences between the two groups. And so some Sephardic intellectuals will take that discourse of difference and try to activate it to make an argument that, yes, Sephardic Jews are a different race. We are our own people. Sephardic Jews are our own people. Ashkenazic Jews are their own people. We may share a common religion, but we're our own nations, just like the Poles and the Spaniards are different nations. So that's sort of like the telos of that kind of uh, logic. It seems as if those whom you're speaking of suffered from a kind of double discrimination, both from the non-Jewish world and from the Ashkenazic establishment. And I'm uh, also interested to see how that gets racialized in the ways you just described with reference to that Columbia University study. Um, what are the psychic costs um, and what are the political and cultural uh, uh, outgrowths of it? Um, is there um, a kind of radicalization as we see, for example, amongst uh, the downtrodden uh, Eastern European immigrants in the Lower East Side? Is there a political consciousness that emerges out of it? Is there an emotional burden? What's the, what, what's, what's the psychic cost of that double consciousness which they uh, uh, have to contend with? Again, here, I think there are multiple paths that, the, that Levantine Jews pursue in regard to this problem of the double consciousness. In some ways, the consciousness is maybe even triple or more than that, because I think one of the challenges that Jews from the Muslim world encountered in the United States was precisely their uncategorizability in some ways as being essentially 
um, Spanish-speaking Jews from the Muslim world who are oftentimes not identified as Jewish, sometimes perceived to be Muslim, sometimes perceived to be Puerto Rican, for example, or Arab or Italian. And they could deploy these kinds of identity vectors in different ways. I think the most dramatic psychic cost that came from this encounter with mainstream Ashkenazi uh, Jewish institutions and individuals in places like New York was a lear learning to refer to themselves not as Jews. And this is something we can see in the sources from the 1920s and 30s in oral histories where they talked about the Jews and the Sephardim or the Yiddishim and the Sephardim, that somehow the Jews were them. We are not Jews, they would say. The Jew, they accepted, in other words, the monopoly that Ashkenazi Jews claimed for themselves on the category of Jewish in the United States. And I think to imagine a scenario in which you've grown up your whole life in the Ottoman Empire, say, in North Africa, Jews were unquestionably Jewish. I mean, there was really no, there was no way about it other than to acknowledge their own Jewishness by their neighbors, by their state, pardon me, by their state and by themselves to come to a place where Jewishness, the category and everything that evoked meant so many, such different kinds of things in terms of language, geographic origin, narratives, uh, relig religious rituals, cuisine, to try to grapple with the claim that you are not Jewish, but you are an imposter Jew, I think really was a traumatic experience that has been internalized in many ways and has contributed to a very serious degree of erasure, imposed erasure and also self-reinforced uh, erasure of Sephardic culture to try to fit the mold of what Jewish means in the United States and to try to carve out the few little places in which it's okay to be Sephardic in the United States. Like food is okay. It's nice to have exotic food, borekas say, or it's nice to have you know Mediterranean music that adds color and flavor to the Jewish world, but to have politics or to have intellectual contributions or to have worldviews that might challenge the way in which mainstream Jewish organizations position the Jewish experience in the United States. There, has, there was not space for that in the early 20th century, and I'm not quite sure if there is space for that just yet today. Right. So this provides us with the opportunity to, sh to shift from our inquiry into the past to the present, but in a gradual way, because um, in a recent lecture, you called for the reclamation of a lost Sephardic past. And I'm interested to hear you elaborate a bit on what was lost and how, and what the burden of memory or its erasure uh, has been. There is so much work, I would say, that needs to be done among scholars, among Sephardim themselves and Mizrahim to reclaim a sense of their history and their culture and their historic lived experience. Their language or our languages uh, have been largely erased. And there's, there are demographic reasons for this in part, but I think it goes beyond that. There are structural inequalities in the way that the United States has been set up 
and in the way that American Jewish institutional life has been set up. You cannot learn the Ladino language or Judeo-Arabic at hardly any university in the United States. Dozens and dozens of Jewish studies programs. You cannot even figure out how to learn the language of non, these languages of non-Ashkenazi Jews to get at the sources. Compendiums of Jewish literature do not include sources translated from Ladino or Judeo-Arabic. Um, this invisibility is almost so totalizing that there's been a vast chasm that Sephardim and Mizrahim of my generation and certainly younger have to cross in order to try to gain access to the world of our forebearers in terms of political positions, in terms of language access, in terms of textual traditions, in terms of rabbinic thought, in terms of uh, even uh, music, synagogue practices, um, and food. Although I think food and maybe music and to a certain extent the synagogue world are closest to us in the presence, but to really understand what does that mean and what is the different sort of epistemology that comes with those positions? Like, what does it mean to come out of a Jewish tradition that historically has not been fragmented into reform, conservative, and orthodox Judaisms, or that does not have a firm line set between secular and uh, religious domains, for example? Or what does it mean to recognize that the largest Sephardic mutual aid society in the United States was founded by a communist? And most of the early members of that organization were Sephardic socialists who were writing about socialism in Ladino. That is a completely occluded kind of domain. And um, it requires a lot of effort, I think, to, to access it. Is it not a product of the great American melting pot experiment, which level difference? And if so, to what would you compare this erasure? Um, surely Savardim were not unique in suffering uh, this loss of a native culture. Uh, that was a demand placed on many groups. And I'm wondering what, what comes to your mind as, as analogous? Well, I think that what maybe distinguishes this Eastern Sephardic experience is that it is mediated through the general Jewish experience. So like on the one hand, I think that some Sephardim could escape anti-Semitism from the state or from their neighbors precisely because some of them could, would, could pass re relatively easily as not Jewish based on those same things that made them not Jewish in the eyes of the mainstream Ashkenazic world. So like we have debates in the early 20th century about um, whether Sephardic Jews should take jobs at, at factories or businesses that are known to not hire Jews, but if they can get jobs pretending to be Italians or pretending to be Spaniards or Frenchmen, should they do it? So like, so there's that one path, which also leads, by the way, to descendants of Sephardim to not become, in the process of ethnicization in America, they do not become Jews. They become Italian-Americans, or they become Greek-Americans, or they become Latinx, they become Puerto Rican, for example, I mean, in, in, in some ways, because they find commonality and they find kinship in those domains. So I think in, in, in this kind of tiered or a nested way that Sephardic Jews have to encounter the structural 
racism of this country makes the experience of Levantine Jews a little bit more complex <laughs> and a little bit more troubling. Right. So in light of that, I'm wondering how the path of Jews in the United States toward whiteness looks through the lens of Sephardic history, because it's a very different cast than uh, when one is gazing simply on Ashkenazic Jewry. Correct. Well, I think it if we bring in the experience of Jews from Muslim lands into the account of American Jewish history, I think some of the great myths of the American Jewish experience begin to unravel. The, experience, the, the, the notion of American Jewish exceptionalism, that you know, Jews have synthesized their Americanness and their Jewishness in ways that have been more fruitful and productive and protected more so than any other country in the world. Well, that begins to come undone a little bit when you begin to confront the intra-Jewish prejudices in the experience and the erasures that had to take place in order for that mythology to, um, to persist and to survive across the generations. Like in terms of the whiteness story, for example, we have no known cases of um, European Ashkenazi Jews being denied their petitions for naturalization on the grounds that they are not white. Their whiteness may have been contested in a variety of other domains in the United States, but in terms of naturalization, we have no examples of Ashkenazi Jews being denied citizenship on the grounds that they're not white. We do have such examples on the grounds of, um, of Jews from the Muslim world being denied uh, citizenship on the grounds that they are not white. So when we begin to bring in the story of Levantine Jews, Oriental Jews, uh, into the story of American Jewish history, the whiteness of the story begins to be called further into question. And I think it's a challenge both from the narratives that dominate the left and the right, which are very much embedded in this narrative of the whiteness of white Jews. Um, and here we have examples of Jews who today might be white, but then um, were even less white. <laughs> so I want to just um, think of nomenclature for a second, because you've made reference to, I think, three different groups um, about whom you might be talking about at various points in time. So there are the Spanish Portuguese grandees who came in colonial times. There are Eastern Sephardim from the Ottoman Empire. And then you mentioned a group called Mizrahim, uh, Jews of Middle Eastern origin. And I'm wondering what the state of affairs is today in terms of uh, whether cultural differences between and amongst those groups have begun to disappear as um, an alternative cultural sensibility to the Ashkenazi mainstream, or if your sense is they remain distinct and separate within uh, the wider category of Sephardi Mizrahi? I think that there are clusters of individuals, families, and communities that have pursued both of those paths. If we go back 100 years ago, for example, um, the general American public and American Jewish establishment did not distinguish between Ladino-speaking Jews and Arabic-speaking Jews, say, for example. They were all in the framework of Oriental Jews or Levantine Jews, even if they themselves 
could not necessarily communicate with each other and saw differences between each other. Now, the way that the Ottoman Empire dissolves in the early 20th century, some of the parts of the Ottoman Empire becoming part of what is now Europe, and so, like Greece and the Balkans and Turkey maybe being somewhere in the middle, and then some of the Ottoman Empire or former Ottoman Empire coming under European colonial rule uh, sets up two different kinds of experiences for two uh, groups that that go on different paths in those historic spaces. So you might think of the Eastern Sephar Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews as having one kind of experience in the Balkan zone, and then uh, the Mizra what we now call Mizrahim, the Jews from North Africa and the Middle East, having slightly def different trajectories, and those groups not coming in larger numbers to the United States until really the post-Second World War II period and as part of the process of decolonization. So even when those kinds of communities meet together in the middle of the 20th century, the historic Ladino-speaking communities, and then those of Arabic or more likely French-speaking Jewish communities, there are yet some tensions that are replicated um, once again. So today, <clears throat> there are families and individuals of the Ladino-speaking background that are deeply uh, tied to and participating in the mainstream Ashkenazi Jewish community, either as invisibly Sephardic or trying to articulate their sense of Sephardicness within the framework that is available to them. There are those that are outside of the Jewish community, and you could say the same thing for the for Mizrahim as well, with a whole constellation of political dispositions uh, among them. I, I know this is a very tricky business, but do we have any reliable statistics on the numbers of, uh, of Jews in these various categories? Not really, I would say. Um, <laughs> um, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands combined between these different community groups, some of which have intermixed with each other, uh, you know, have have intermarried. Same with Ashkenazim and 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 uh, and the Ladino-speaking Jews. I mean, it's a very wide uh, range of family relations that play out. Um, one study that we do have um, suggests that in a place like Seattle, which is where I live right now, which ha and has a disproportionately large Sephardic population, they say that approximately. Uh, according to a recent Jewish Federation uh, demographic study of the area here, that approximately 10% of the um, Jewish households are Sephardic and about 10% are mixed Sephardic Ashkenazic, whereas nationally, the estimate is perhaps 5 to 10% of uh, of American Jews are Sephardic or Mizrahi. But again, these categories are very tenuous. They are ambiguous, and they also sometimes get grouped and lumped or sometimes very clearly disaggregated from another category that we have, which is Jews of color. Right. If I can, um, by just returning to a point we made at the outset, which is that we are at a point of national reckoning over race and racism in the United States, um, and sort of in parallel, there's um, an increased voice given to uh, um, Jews of color, as they call themselves, um, 
and uh, renewed attention to the involvement or complicity of the American Jewish communal establishment in uh, structural racism. Um, and it seems to me that uh, that new awareness on the part of Jewish Jews of color and that political critique, especially of younger generations of Jews, are related and indeed have amplified voice in this moment of national reckoning. And I'm just wondering how this looks through the lens of uh, Sephardic history and from your perspective as, of an, as an historian of the Sephardic experience. I would say first on the historical level, I think we can see the kinds of dynamics playing out a century ago in New York and the kinds of erasures or exclusions uh, uh, that were perpetrated by what we might call mainstream American Jewish institutions vis-a-vis -vis Jews from the Ottoman Empire in some ways is like a dress rehearsal for the dynamics today. Um, the ways in which uh, Jews of color and especially black Jews speak about their sense of alienation from American Jewish institutions or the sense of not being welcome or the sense of having to constantly explain or justify themselves. That dynamic, that experience is uh, very familiar from a uh, from a Sephardic historical lens, looking at the dynamics from a century ago, and and you know, and moving forward, and it still you know it still plays out. Like I, you know, in a in a among my friends of my friends of color, Jews of color, like I'm a white I'm a white person, but when I'm with white Ashkenazi Jews, my my whiteness is you know is 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 called into question on a regular basis or I'm with when I'm with white people in general, my whiteness is called into question. So there's this interesting way in which there can be, again, an echo of that in-betweenness um, of this liminality of Sephardim and Mizrahim in the, uh, in the historical context of the United States that can continue to echo today. And in some ways, there's um, a renewed invisibility actually of Sephardim and Mizrahim in this white kind of black discussion or white Jews and Jews of color. So where do Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews fit into this kind of American dichotomy, right? Into the, the categories of colonial racism, essentially, the, you know, there's, we might add to the legacy of colonial racism, the legacy of, of scientific racism and how they kind of intermix and, um, and re reinforce certain kinds of erasures and, and hierarchies. But still, there has not quite yet been an opportunity for um, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews who may be white in certain contexts, but may be less white in other contexts to find a place in this kind of racial uh, discussion and debate. Yeah, you know, in light of this liminality, um, I'm reminded of something that you wrote, or perhaps I heard you uh, say in one of your lectures uh, recently that tried to link uh, the history of Sephardim to the current struggle. And that is uh, that Sephardic Jews um, indeed were marginalized within uh, the American and American Jewish mainstream. But yet, at the same time, you emphasized they had privilege relative to African-Americans. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can reflect on that particular piece of the liminal puzzle, um, that space, means in terms of um, activism and, and, and uh, the demand for political change today. 
I think that historically we see some Ottoman-born Ladino-speaking Jews serving in some ways as kind of bridge builders in social justice movements a century ago. So, for example, Ladino-speaking Jews were among those who helped to organize Latinx, I mean, that's an anachronistic term, we would say, uh, uh, at the time, probably Hispanic or um, Puerto Rican workers, factory workers in uh, in Harlem in the early 20th century. Through Ladino, they could get to Spanish, and they were very active both in the socialist and in the communist party in the early 20th century, bringing in uh, other Spanish speakers into that kind of labor movement. At the same time, we see Sephardic Jews, one in particular, getting very involved in desegregation efforts in the union movements in the period of the 1950s and 1960s, in which he is there as a white person. There's no question that he is white there, um, but also kind of trying to build bridges to other Jews and to other kinds of uh, other kinds of ethnic or racial uh, groups. Um, and so I think this is a history or a constellation of historical factors that have largely been lost because they don't fit the paradigm. Um, and I think that there is some utility to acknowledge these historical paths that were once operative and to think again about the metaphor of a bridge. I mean, I think it's kind of a worn metaphor, but there is, I think, some utility for it. If you think again, uh, uh, yet another group, a uh, hundred years ago, the Ottoman Red Crescent Society in New York was run by a Muslim and a Sephardic Jew in support of Muslim philanthropy. Seems kind of incomprehensible almost by today's imaginings of what Jews and Muslims are like. Or to think about Jews and um, and Spanish speakers as having like this shared or overlapping kind of history of uh, contact and persecution by the Spanish Empire. And I think it's like thinking about these ligatures almost um, that the Sephardic experience can bring to light that I think can open up new ways of thinking about our contemporary moment and, and shifting, first of all, our vocabulary and some of our dichotomies, making the basic terms of our debate start to collapse, like white and black, for example, cannot White Jewish black relations needs to go away as a discursive trope because it denies that there are uh, Jews who are black and it also denies that there are blacks who, who are Jews. And the same thing like in terms of the Spanish speaking world and Jews and also in terms of thinking about like Arabs and Jews or Muslims and Jews. Like you go to a Sephardic synagogue, the music is set to the same maqams, the same musical modes as uh, as Arabic popular music, as the mosques in Istanbul. That's a shared cultural domain that has very important political valence that if we don't recognize, we are not only having an impoverished vision of history, but also a narrowed vision of what the future might involve. So as you identify these affinities, I wonder um, if you find it tricky to navigate the boundary that separates necessary historical reclamation and romanticized nostalgia. 
Absolutely. I would say it is a very difficult kind of domain to pursue. Um, and I would say that my goal would not be to recreate a lost world. You know, I'm not interested in that, but I am interested in pulling down some of the threads that are there and then trying to re-sew them in a certain way to think about a future, uh, a kind of a present and future trajectory. And we haven't really explored those possibilities, so we don't really know what would be involved. I would say the greatest pitfall that is involved in this process is laying bare vulnerabilities. And I think that what makes what I'm describing very difficult for a number of reasons, but it, it, it requires in some ways undoing or pushing back against, or at least revisiting all of the efforts that American Jewish institutions and individuals have invested in whiteness, essentially for the last hundred years or more. I'm mean, going back to 1790, right? When Jews among the Jews who were granted citizenship in 1790 by the first naturalization act were slave owners, right? I mean, so there is a very long history uh, that goes deep into the core of this country. And we have to think about what are the risks um, that are involved, you know, the vulnerabilities. Like, I mean, I, like, so I'll give you one example, uh, if I may, a personal example, which is that um, my son has an, un, I, have a, I have a toddler who has an undiagnosed fever condition, okay? And uh, some doctors think it might be familial Mediterranean fever syndrome, which is a syndrome that is common among Sephardic Jews, Arabs, um, Armen and Armenians, basically. Okay, these are the main groups that it affects. And so I went to a doctor in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, you know, I'm trying as part of my reclamation effort, I'm trying to speak to my children in Ladino. Uh, and I go to this doctor. And I'm speaking to him about this particular condition. And if he's seen patients who have this, you know, have familial Mediterranean fever condition. And he gives me side eye. He's like, here? As if we don't have people like that here in the Pacific Northwest. And my response was, I had a very visceral kind of response to that because I came expecting support from a doctor. And then suddenly my defenses were very intensely uh, peaked. And I scoped out the scene of the room. I looked like, where are the doors? I mean, it was very, I stopped speaking to my kid in Ladino. I imagined maybe I should have shaven, maybe I should have shaved. You know, maybe I should have done a better job trying to be a white person that day. And the thing about it is I don't know whether the way that he spoke to me at that moment, which was a microaggression, I mean, you know, it was a microaggression. Was that an animosity that was directed towards me as a Jew or as someone coming from the broader Middle East? Or could it have been both? And that was something that I felt was like very specific to me. And when that moment happened, all these other memories entered my mind. Like when I was walking down a, the street in front of a synagogue last year and one of the congregants, a white Ashkenazi guy, I'm speaking to my kid again in Ladino and a, uh, this guy turns around on the sidewalk. He says, oh good, it's you. 
as if somehow he knew me and him speak and me speaking Ladino, him knowing that it was me was okay because maybe it was somebody else speaking the Spanish kind of language would have been what threatening would not have been welcomed. So like to acknowledge these kinds of experiences makes discussions about Jewish life and these race dynamics very uncomfortable. So um, thank you for sharing. Um, a final question, which is our sort of signature final question on then and now, uh, which you've sort of touched upon, but now you have an opportunity to address it in succinct, concluding fashion. What can we learn from history? Well, I think that I don't know if I'm going to make a claim from history with a capital H, but I would say with um, with the perspective of the of Sephardic history and what it can tell us. You know, there's a Ladino refrain, um, a a uh, an adage that says "Deshame entrar, meazare lugar." It means "Let me in, and I will make a place for myself." And I think that that has largely been the approach of Jews in American society and Sephardic Jews in Jewish American society. Like, give me a kind of a seat at the table. I will make myself comfortable there. But what if that's not enough? You know, what if we need to, we need a new table? What if that table needs to be burnt down and we need to build a new one from scratch, maybe taking some of those elements that are relevant and useful for our present day and present perspectives, but discarding a lot of the other things that have held us back or have contained us in positions of exclusion and um, differentiating levels of, of privilege and access. So uh, we don't have a, a, a refrain for that in, uh, in Ladino to burn it all down, but um, I think that that does... <laughs> But I think that thinking about what the structure of that table is, what the institution uh, of uh, American society and Jewish American society, how it has been configured, what are the legs and what are the pieces of that, of that table need to be radically reconceptualized and reconsidered. I do believe that the wood on that table is a bit rotten if it wasn't already from the start. Well, thank you, Devin, for joining us on Then and Now. It's been a most illuminating uh, hour with you. Um, and thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a good and healthy day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.